Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us for this discussion with Louisa Lim and Kylie Moore-Gilbert. I'm Anne Mossop. I'm the Director of the Centre of Ideas for Ideas at UNSW Sydney, and it's wonderful to be here at the Writers' Festival, escaping from the rain, um, escaping from election talk, um, <laughs> and having a conversation with these wonderful, wonderful people. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I work at the University of New South Wales, where I'm fortunate to have as a colleague Professor Megan Davis, um, the person that you would know from reading the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And she always encourages people for, to make acknowledgement of country, not uh, a token gesture. And what I and working with her, there's always a sense for me of being very proud to be to be working for an organisation that supports her work. And I just want to note for all of us that today may be a day when we move closer to realising the goals of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So, you know, without really mentioning the war, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, we may be waking up tomorrow to a different era of, of transformational change in that respect. Some housekeeping. Please turn your phones to silent, but if you are inclined to tweet... Please use the hashtag, hashtag Sydney Writers Festival. Um, we will be, uh, Kylie and Louise will be going to sign their books at the end of this session. Uh, for those of you who don't own them already, uh, I'm sure you will be moved to do so by our discussion today. Um, in an hour, we're never going to be able to talk about all the things that we might want to talk about. And so what I want to do is ask Kylie and Louisa to share, uh, uh, to share with us a bit of an introduction to, to their work, but then we're going to be talking about some of the things that their work has in common and touches on in a really interesting way. They've both written these amazing books that are incredible chronicles of people and place and a moment in time. They both talk in different and fascinating ways about the challenge of resisting authoritarian regimes individually and collectively and the politics of that, um, and how people cope with those kinds of, of pressures. Um, let me introduce them briefly. Louisa, as you, you know, is the author of Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Highly recommended. You don't have to have the corny yellow post-it notes. <laughs> Her earlier book uh, chronicles the, 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 what, what happened in public consciousness to the, the Tiananmen Rebellion, the People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, when it was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. She's an award-winning journalist and podcaster. She's reported from China for NPR and the BBC. Um, and she is now uh, at Lucky Australia, a senior lecturer in audiovisual journalism at the University of Melbourne and co-host of the Little Red podcast. And I'm going to make sure that we talk about a new podcast that she's coming out in June that I think you will all want to pay attention to as well. Dr. Kylie Moore-Gilbert is a scholar of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. Um, she speaks uh, several Middle Eastern languages, has travelled extensively in the region. 
Travelling to a conference in Iran in 2018, she was falsely accused of espionage and uh, imprisoned for more than two years. Um, she was released in November 2020 as part of a prisoner exchange deal negotiated by the Australian government and recently has published her memoir, The Uncaged Sky, which tells the story of her, the 804 days she spent as a political prisoner. So let's just begin by introducing a little bit those, those two amazing books. Um, perhaps it, we can start with Kylie. Tell us about your decision to sit down and start writing this book and what you wanted to do with it, both in terms of bearing witness and telling the story, and also in terms of dealing with the experience that you had gone through. I actually started to think about writing what happened to me in some sort of book format whilst I was still in prison in Iran, particularly throughout 2020, so the kind of last 12 months of my incarceration. And I already had come up with the, the kind of four segments. I've got four parts in my book and each is structured around the idea of a different kind of game, um, you know, spy game, blame game, end game, this kind of thing. And I'd come up with that concept already whilst I was in prison and, you know, I had a lot of time on my hands, obviously, so I had a lot of time to sit and, and think and I didn't know the ending at that point, but so much had already happened and I felt it was my duty to record that in some form, even if it only be for myself and if nobody ever read it. But I knew I wanted to write it down. And maybe that was also because I spent a long period without pen and paper. And so my mind and my brain became the only means of, of recording anything. And um, I worked a lot on memorization and, and that sort of thing too. And I had a lot of time to contemplate, you know, should I write this down? What parts would I write? What parts might I not write about? Um, what level of detail to include? That kind of thing. So it had been bubbling away in my mind for a while before I was even released. This is something very interesting. And for those of you who have read the book, you will, you will see that there are wonderful little cartoons and uh, notes and, and, and all kinds of things. Um, and what I'm really interested in is, you know, you've reconstructed life in prison in, in a lot of detail. Um, you've also included these little snippets, uh, you've, you know, very vivid dialogue, but also these little snippets of notes and cartoons and images. Um, how did you do that? Were those, that, you know, you've said you, you memorised a lot of things, but sitting down and reconstructing 804 days... How did you do that? My memory, for some reason, was and is much sharper of the... I mean, I wouldn't say all 804, but the, the ideal, the ordeal that I went through in Iran, for some reason, I guess because I was in a constant state of low-level stress and anxiety the entire time, if not very high levels at certain junctures, my brain retained that information more than in an ordinary sense. So when I came to actually sit down and write notes that would later then become the first draft of the book, and I actually hand wrote them because at certain times in prison I had a pen and paper and I would do a lot of handwriting and that felt more natural to me as well, writing those recollections down by hand after I was released. Um, I, I just, a lot of the details stuck in my mind for some reason. And today I wouldn't be able to tell you what I ate for breakfast or what I read, you know, <laughs> the last book I read or anything. You know, my mind's like a sieve normally. But because of, I think, 
the emotional intensity of those 804 days, for some reason my mind just retained a hell of a lot more detail than it normally would. You, you talk very positively, I can't remember whether it's maybe in the epilogue or, or the introduction to the book, but you, you speak um, about your publisher, Ultimo Press, saying that they had shared your vision for the book that you wanted to write. And for those of us with an interest in, in reading about the Middle East in any way, shape or form, there is a genre of memoir that I call the, you know, the not without my daughter kind of, you know, kind of genre. There is a uh, the, the, the airport books with the silhouette of the, the woman in a, uh, you know, a veiled woman. Maybe there's a Kalashnikov silhouette lurking in the corner somewhere. Um, you know, put upon Western or Middle Eastern princess of some description has been wrenched from her terrible captivity. Um, and, you know, this comes with a whole lot of quite Orientalist stereotyping of, 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 of the cultures in which it's taking place. Your book, you know, as, as you will all see from this incredibly beautiful um, cover um, and from the writing of it, you, you've, you know, you have completely eschewed those cliches and, and the st- a stereotypical rendering of the Iran in which you, you know, are incarcerated and, and the people that you meet. How deliberately were you setting out to... Was that something that you were setting out to avoid that whole, that whole stereotype genre? Maybe in terms of the cover design, yes, it was deliberate. Obviously, I think from the very, very first, the early days, I said absolutely no bars, absolutely <laughs> no my face looking through some bars on the cover or something. You know, like an, I, I was very adamant that I didn't want that image or me in a hijab, heaven forbid, you know. Um, it, I wanted it to be authentic looking, I guess. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, these stereotypes I'm very well aware of in my previous life as an academic you know, looking at the Middle East from a research focus. And um, I don't think it was a conscious decision, but certainly I had the depth of experience being in Iran for more than two years in that situation to perceive the the fact that my captors themselves were not these black and white stereotypical characters, that they had, you know, depth as well. And I don't think I saw the world in that way, therefore it came across hopefully anyway, that, you know, that the complexity of the people and the places that I was exposed to during my time in Iran hopefully came across to the reader and that it wasn't just a shallow surface 2D, um, you know, stereotypical view of Iran. But, you know, as a scholar of Middle Eastern studies, you're obviously very aware of, you know, Orientalist tropes and the kind of, um, you know, 19th century Western gaze on the Orient and this kind of thing, and I definitely would have wanted to avoid that. And the 21st century airport bookseller, yes, you know, version you. of that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, one of the things about uh, about writing that book, you, you said you have had a very, you know, that your memory was very sharp. Was it difficult to go back to thinking about those things in those times or were you buoyed up by freedom, I guess, by having escaped from it. Certainly when I started writing the book, I was like on a high. I mean, I I spent about six months just being utterly ecstatic, you know, after my release, rediscovering the world, rediscovering what it meant to be free and t- taking pleasure in, in the smallest, most innocuous details of life that you would take for granted ordinarily, you know, being able to run in the woods near my house and just feel the wind in my hair and the sun on my face and 
and be alone without having cameras on me or somebody following me or the feeling that somebody's following me and not knowing if they are or not, this kind of feeling, just being stripped, having that stripped away from me and being autonomous and in control of my own destiny, it felt amazing. So that was, I guess, the state I was in when I started writing the book. It didn't obviously last. You have to come back down to earth at some point. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I don't know if that comes through. And also I, I wrote the book in such a way that I kind of jumped around chronologically. I didn't sit down and write it from beginning to end. Um, I started writing part four and then jumped back to part two, this kind of thing. So I don't think that shift in my mentality necessarily comes across to the reader. Um, but it, it certainly did affect my approach to the book at the beginning of the writing phase. Mm. Louisa, let's talk about The Indelible City. Indelible City, not The Indelible City. Um, this is a really fascinating book because it is a personal memoir. It is a history of Hong Kong, the like of which I had certainly not read before. Um, absolutely fascinating way that you have taken colonial history and the, the current situation um, of Hong Kong as post the 1997 ha handover and, and put those two stories together to illuminate, um, you know, this incredible situation that the people of Hong Kong are in and, and all of these wonderful things that you, you show us about... Hong Kong identity. Um, you talk in the book about how you had set out originally to write a more journalistic book um, and that you had kind of, you know, that circumstances and events, being in Hong Kong when all of these extraordinary things were happening had made you move on. But uh, from our conversation backstage, we also, also understand that there is a PhD thesis embedded inside this book, that, that, that a piece of the research for this is in there. So tell us a little bit about how you came to put this extraordinary book together in these ways, all of these different strands. Well, it, I mean, I guess it was a thing that just kind of evolved. It took on its own life and became this sort of <laughs> something else entirely. And I guess, you know, in a way that's... Uh, I'm following in my mother's tradition because my mother wrote books as well and she's kind of quite famous in our family for starting in a really simple project and then it's spiralling horribly out of control. Um, so she said she was going to write a pamphlet which was a guide to a graveyard and she and took her 10 years and she wrote a 600-page <laughs> book. There was a social history where she tracked down like the letters that people who were buried in those graves had writ written and their diaries and stuff like that. So she was actually really um, important in this whole project. And sometimes I wonder how much of it is her and how much is me. Because when I started, I said to her, I think I'm going to write something about Hong Kong. And she gave me her, she carried her entire uh, library in a suitcase to Australia, all the colonial history books of Hong Kong. And she also told me certain people to go and talk to. And I went to speak to one of her friends, uh, someone who had trekked around the graveyard for many hot, horrible, uncomfortable hours with her. Um, like you, you did as a child also. Yeah, absolutely. I spent almost all my childhood looking at temples and study halls and just wishing that we could play tennis or, you know, go shopping like other kids, do glamorous things. Um, but she sent me to see a historian called Tim Coe. And I said to him, what do you think of all these um, 
colonial history books. And he just said, oh, you know, there were no names, no faces of Chinese. And when I was reading them, that was always in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I saw this through line where there was a history, all these different histories of Hong Kong, but none of them had any Hong Kong people in them. And so that was kind of what I ended up doing. Um, although I, I guess I didn't really know that I was going to do that. In the tradition of my mother, it just took on a life of its own and turned into something that it wasn't really meant to be. But then once I started, I couldn't really stop. Um, so it became... I mean, what I ended up wanting to do was that this history that really centered Hong Kong voices, that told uh, the different histories of Hong Kong and not these kind of state-sponsored narratives, but the other histories, the ordinary people's histories, or even the imagined histories, which to colonized people can sometimes be more real than the actual histories which are imposed upon them. There are a couple of threads that run through the book. Um, uh, and I think, you know, probably threads is, is, is the, the wrong way to describe them because that implies a, a slenderness to it. There are some really important pieces in the book. Um, one of which is, you know, for me as a reader was, was the, your narrative, the, the way you talked about the British um, colonisation of Hong Kong and in particular discovering a whole set of testimonies um, um, from from uh, significant players in 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 Hong Kong life and politics um, that had been published as interviews and no doubt are disappearing from library shelves as we speak. Uh, you know, potentially they're this 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 testament to to what really happened, which wasn't in the official histories. And the way you you know, I think uh, I think it was you know very shocking to be reminded about how little agency Hong Kongers had had under British rule, um, how incredibly limited their... No self-determination and how really quite dismissively, um, how, how appallingly they, they were treated at the time when the handover was being negotiated, left out of it, really, you know, watching the colonial... The British colonisers wash their hands of this problem... Um, was that something that surprised you when you delved into that information, or did you have a sense that w was that was that something that that you were you really knew already? It totally surprised me. Yeah. Um, so these were documents. They were interviews done by a Hong Kong political scientist in the 1980s and 1990s, and they um, had been held uh, in Oxford at the library, and they were not to be released until 30 years after the last incident described. And the library had just kind of forgotten about them. So they hadn't actually, some of them hadn't actually been released. And I, I knew Steve and I'd asked him about them and I'd shown him the list and he had looked at it and he said, I thought I interviewed some other people, but can't really remember who they are. <laughs> so we went back to Oxford and found there were all these other interviews there. And when I read them, I was just stunned because the histories that we had grown up with, that handover was, you know, the decision to hand Hong Kong back seemed like such a foregone conclusion. And, um, you know, at the time, all the pomp and the ceremony of the handover that everybody remembers, you know, everybody, the narrative that people believe was this sort of honourable withdrawal of the Britain making the best of, you know, a bad deal kind of thing. And then the stories that were told by the Hong Kongers who were inside 
well, not quite inside, but very close to the negotiations, was so different because Hong Kongers had never been allowed to sit at the table. They weren't part of the negotiations, but there was this very senior group of Hong Kong um, po- uh, people, like bankers and industrialists, who were advisors for the British. And basically, the British kind of used them to sell this deal to Hong Kong people. And although that group of people was very dissatisfied with the joint declaration, the agreement to return to China, they, you know, they had this very deep inbuilt sense of honor that they must do their best for the people. And so they ended up going along with it. But these documents told another story, you know, the story of anguish and heartbreak and very, you know, so much candor where they talked about all their worries. And, you know, it turned out that all the things they'd warned both Britain and China about are all the things that have happened, you know, in the last few years. So their, you know, all their fears did indeed materialize. But many of them have died since then. And when I found those interviews and started reading them, you know, it was this sort of astonishing moment where I could almost sort of feel them from beyond the grave and I was getting chills down my spine. I didn't realize that, you know, there'd been warnings at this level and I didn't realize the effort that the British made to dismiss or downplay those warnings, even though, you know, the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher herself, she knew what they said, she agreed with them secretly. And, you know, if you read the diplomatic papers, you can see that she absolutely didn't trust the Chinese. She agreed um, that they probably wouldn't keep their word, and yet she went ahead anyway. So it was, you know, such a story of diplomatic expediency, but at a cost, such a high cost to human lives. And, uh, you know, you said in, in, in one right, a previous session here, really the situation of the people of Hong Kong, six million people being handed over with no safeguards. And, and you know, what, what we read about in, in, in your book about the behind the scenes is the extreme carelessness. <laughs> um, really, the, the, this whole thing about wanting to get the deal done quickly, quietly, expediently, and move on because, you know, w- we can't get any better out of this and, and, and we, we just wanted to disappear. Um, so this is what one really um, powerful piece, uh, piece of the book. But, you know, the next part of the narrative is what has happened since 1997 to now. And you know, the, the start of really the flowering of a sense of identity of Hong Kong people in response to the situation they find themselves in at the handover and how tragically they're in a, in a situation with the whole um, resistance to, to, to Beijing has led to a, both a flowering of this identity at the same time as it is being progressively snuffed out. And one kind of um, uh, parable that you... Well, not a parable, but a, but a, but a, a kind of the story of the King of Kowloon is, is uh, something that goes across the book. He's somebody who started out... Um, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you to tell us about the King of Kowloon rather than, <laughs> rather than try and paraphrase it. So the King of Kowloon, uh, you can show them the picture in the back of the book. So he was a real... Um, feature of the city in my childhood. He was this elderly, 
uh, disabled trash collector who everybody thought was completely crazy. Um, and he used to wander the streets painting on, on the walls. Um, and it turned out that he believed the peninsula of Kowloon had been stolen from his family in the 1860s when it was given uh, to the British. And so he was painting on the city's walls his claims to the land, but he did it very contextually. So he only painted on government property or crown property. So the lampposts, the post boxes, flyovers, electricity boxes, these weird bits of street furniture that you wouldn't notice. And, you know, when I was a child, people just thought he was crazy. You'd literally cross the street to get away from him because he, he didn't wash very much and he did smell. Um, and then he would, in 1997, he had an art exhibition and it didn't sell anything, but he, it elevated him and he became an icon, you know, and then, uh, you know, Poets started writing poems to him. People started singing songs to him, rap songs, jazz songs, ballads. You know, he's, he starred in a few films, playing cameo roles. Uh, he starred in adverts, and he became, you know, an artist. He represented Hong Kong at the Venice Biennale, and he became Hong Kong's most valuable artist. And I just... For me, the thing about him that was fascinating was that he was talking about these issues decades before anyone else. So, you know, dispossession, territory, sovereignty, and loss. And he was not only talking about them, but doing it very publicly. And by the way, his calligraphy was very bad. It's very <laughs> ugly. It's not beautiful. It's not balanced. It looks like he had two years of schooling, so it just looks like a child's scroll. And I just, you know, I was fascinated by him and the idea that over time, someone who seemed quite crazy in many ways, um, you know, is someone who epitomizes Hong Kong's plight. And, you know, when, when I started talking to people who knew him or had written about him, I, I suddenly found that I was interviewing, you know, the most interesting people in Hong Kong, all the sort of philosophers and singers and artists and people who were thinking about these issues. And then they later turned out to be people who... Um, were very, you know, some of them were very prominent in, in the anti-extradition movement. So, it, you know, it, I didn't know it at the time, but the people that I interviewed then, um, yeah, a lot of them turned out to be extremely politically sensitive figures. And, and that during this, this period since, you know, since 1997, his work has become, you know, progressively more and more recognised and at the same time, you know, like, it, it, you know, paradoxically, the more recognised it is, the more, more this, this whole all of his claims about ownership, that this is happening completely in parallel with those, all, all of that dreams of autonomy and self-determination being stripped away. It's an, incredible, um, it's an incredible part of the story. And this is a podcast that Louisa has coming out in June. So I think um, I, I highly recommend, not having listened to the podcast, but I think it will be a wonderful addition to this story. Um, you've both written accounts of authoritarian regimes confronted by individual and collective resistance. Um, and there are so many things, you know, in that, 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 that problem about, about, about how, you, how, you, how you write, how important it is to bear witness to what has happened, how the truth is something that is incredibly contested, how language is important. But the most important thing that comes through in both of your books um, is the importance of individual courage and bravery and 
also of people joining together um, to resist. Um, and I want to ask you to, to both to talk about that a little bit. You, you know, Louisa, you write about many acts of courage and defiance, both from activists and ordinary people. And I just want you to tell us who are some of the people, tell us a, a little bit about some of the people whose courage struck you most, some of those, those, those people who you came across. Oh, there's um, so many stories. And I mean, you know, for me, the, the really heartbreaking thing is many of the people who I spoke to are still being arrested, um, even, you know, today. Um, so one example is Cardinal Joseph Zen, who's 90 years old. He's a cardinal of the Catholic Church. And uh, I'm, I'd already known him because I was a journalist in Hong Kong. But um, when the protest started in 2019, I, I was out marching the protest route. And I was very surprised to see sort of very, he's very tiny, his white hair. He was standing on a stage sort of shaking his fist and shouting his white hair. It was a very hot day. He was just covered in sweat. And I remember I, you know, went over to talk to him and I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, it's the only thing we can do to walk to sweat to protest. And then I went to interview him the next day and he was so eloquent um, and so clear-minded about this. You know, he saw the laws that were being passed almost as a sort of mannequin struggle between good and evil. Um, and I, you know, I never thought, you know, because he's 90 and a cardinal, I never thought that he, he would be targeted. But in the last couple of weeks, he was arrested under the national security law that was imposed on Hong Kong in 2020, um, because he is a trustee for a charity that was set up to help uh, political prisoners and their families. And that was seen as an act of foreign collusion. And so, you know, even now when I go back and I read his words, they already have a different resonance knowing what has happened to him since and what that might mean for him in future. Kylie, you were and, and um, arbitrarily became a political prisoner. And some of the most extraordinary stories in your book about the, are about the people that you meet in prison, both the people that you were close to over a long period of time, and then there's um, a, a moment where you're moved to a different prison um, and encounter these large groups of, you know, whether there's a decision to set up, put, have political prisoners located in a wing... And it's absolutely fascinating to, to read about these Iranian uh, women and what they're doing. Two of the people who you were closest to, uh, you dedicate the book to, Nilufar Bayani and Sapide Kashani. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, well, these... uh, you, the, 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 the thing that's incredibly fun about the book is that you see Kylie's cartoon drawings of some of these people. <laughs> Um, and and not just not just their extraordinary political uh, opinions or their their courage, but also their curly hair. You know, all of this 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 kind of rounded portrait of them. Yeah, Nilufa, we used to call her Gusvan de Kuchulu, the little little sheep. Somebody understands Farsi there. Um, the, the little sheep, um, or Gusvan de Wahshia Kuchulu, the little wild sheep of Evin, um, of Evin Prison. Um, because she has this crazy mop of curly hair, huge ringlet curls, um, and she's got a sort of a dancer's frame. She's tiny, very petite, very beautiful. 
and um, and Sepida also is is stunningly beautiful and. We used to call her the Lima, but that's a long story. Um, every, we, we had our own little language. I mean, we, we lived to, the, These two ladies, I was sort of illicitly in touch with for Nilufar for nine months, Sipide for maybe six months, uh, via a note-passing network that we set up between various cells that ostensibly weren't meant to be in contact with one another at all. And they, them and others reached out to me and helped me during my darkest moments when I was in solitary confinement in the very first few weeks of my arrest when I was being relentlessly interrogated and they heard I was a foreigner, I couldn't speak Farsi, I, um, I didn't know where I was, I didn't know who had arrested me, I didn't know what the hell was going on or, or what the parameters were, you know, would they physically torture me? I was imagining all sorts of horrific scenarios, you know, in those early days and through a quite complicated process, which I outline in the book, we managed to establish channels of communication and they reached out to me at great risk to themselves to offer me comfort and to give me crucial information. You know, knowledge is power and that would, you know, allay my fears of, of these most, you know, dreadful... And some very practical, I mean, very practical, you know, don't confess to anything. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, snacks. Yes. You know, all of these kinds of things, you, you know, like kind of support at every level. Oh, one of my friends, um, Elena, who I also talk about in the book, um, who I never actually properly met face to face. She was always in another cell and then she left. But she was extremely devious and the, the, the like most talented among us at stealing things, especially <laughs> pens. She stole a pen from the judge himself. It had his name written on it. And it became it became a, a, a kind of bragging rights thing. It was a badge of honour that she had Judge Salavati's pen. That, oh, not just in, any judge. No, it had judge Salavati, Salavati written on it. Um, and it had property of Judge Salavati on it. And he's known as the hanging judge in Iran, responsible for hundreds of people's deaths, unfortunately. So she actually, one of my most prized possessions at one point was a bottle of bleach that she managed to steal from the guards um, very ingeniously and then put it inside a bottle of duch, which is a, a yogurt drink, um, and get that to my cell. And we're not supposed to have any contact whatsoever. And um, I managed to clean my toilet with that bleach, which was probably the first and only time it's ever been cleaned in its entire existence. Um, which gives you some indication of how foul the conditions were. But um, some of these girls, you know, they got me through. Otherwise, I would have been entirely alone. And just because I'm not Iranian and I didn't speak Farsi, I wouldn't have understood anything. Uh, they really were, you know, heroes to me. And they are my sisters. And, you know, I'm endlessly thankful for their friendship, solidarity and support. And tell us what they, why they were in prison. So, and why they are still in prison, Nilofar and uh, Sepide in particular, and why they're, and they're still in prison, in fact. Yes. Um, they are members, both of them are colleagues, actually, um, members of an NGO called the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation. And this NGO was the predominant wildlife and conservation group within Iran. It was receiving money from the UN. It was receiving um, grants and funding and authorization from the Iranian Ministry, uh, sorry, Department of Environment. So it was completely sanctioned and, and, you know, operating with the regime's knowledge and encouragement and support even. And um, they were primarily tasked with trying to save the endangered um, Asiatic cheetah and Persian leopard, which are critically endangered in Iran, these two big cats. Only, you know, several hundred of them left in the wild. 
and um, everything was above board. And this is the national symbol of Iran. You know, the, the, this symbol is on the, the men's football team um, T-shirt. You know, so the, the government wanted these animals to be saved because they were a national symbol, kind of like a koala or a kangaroo to us. And to the, you know, very, very unfortunately... Um, the habitat of these leopards and cheetahs happened to be, and it's several hundred kilometres wide habitat, but um, happened to be in the area where the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps had underground missile launching facilities, which was secret. And they were tracking the movements of these leopards and cheetahs and wanting to know their mating habits and where they would go at night and this sort of thing. And they were accused of spying on these missile launching facilities, using big cats as a ruse to... I don't know, do, do God knows what. The whole thing was preposterous. And um, their entire NGO was rounded up and thrown in prison and put on trial for espionage for the CIA and the Mossad. And um, they're still there to this day, more than four years later. And they're all completely innocent. The Iranian government unusually came out because the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, were the same people who arrested me arrested them. The um, Iranian government is a separate kind of rival faction in a way of the IRGC at that point because now the government's become more hardline. Um, and they actually unusually conducted their own inquiry and came out and said, these guys are innocent. But perhaps even to spite the government, it became a kind of a factional infighting situation. Um, they were put on trial, same judge as me, the notorious Salavati, and um, some of them, Nilufar was up for the death penalty, but in the end they were given substantial prison sentences. So it's just one example of a just a huge number of miscarriages of justice in Iran, and these two women in particular, Nilufar and Sipide, just mean the world to me. They really saved me, and that's why I dedicated the book to them. Mm. One of the things that you have both had to navigate in terms of um, you know, writing the stories and, and um, talking about these incredibly important people who are still in Iran and Hong Kong is the whole challenge of, of what you leave out. Um, and Lu Louisa, in, in particular, this is the irony of this is that you, you know, you say you are very much trying to put the voices of Hong Kongers back into their own story and at the same time, you know, in the process, as you're writing this, things in Hong Kong are getting worse and worse and worse. How did you think about those kind of considerations? And, and also, you know, something that you mentioned in the book is, you know, all of your training as a journalist about reporting and how, you know, the ethical kind of position that you can take as a reporter and what that does to your personal engagement. At some point, you have... Uh, decided that you are in the, you know, that, that you're in the story, you're not just a reporter anymore, you're going on protests. So the, the, the whole question about what, what, what changed during the run of you about this, this ethical framework and how you thought about those things, about what to leave out. Yeah, it was a really tricky um, situation and it has become harder and harder because after the national security legislation was imposed on Hong Kong, it's just being used to kind of um, criminalise all kinds of things and a lot of acts of, you know, even protest slogans that people were shouting have become criminalised. And actually, even the words on the front cover of my book, which says, which means go, like add oil, it's a shout of encouragement, a kind of yay Hong Kong people. Even that is deemed potentially subversive in Hong Kong by court today. So it's really hard to know 
to navigate those lines. And I did, you know, I ended up quite reluctantly taking out people's names, sometimes taking out um, sort of distinguishing characteristics and removing people, even though that was the last thing that I wanted to do. And actually, um, talking about dedications, uh, there's a reason my book is dedicated to everyone who really fucking loves Hong Kong. And that in itself is a, a kind of a political statement because all the other protest slogans were banned. So you could no longer say, you know, this law is bad or whatever. So instead, people started saying, we really fucking love Hong Kong as a kind of protest slogan because you can't criminalize love. So that's why my dedication is the way that it is. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful dedication. Um, Kylie, you had a you're in a really interesting situation in terms of 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 the story that you tell. How, how did you decide what to leave in and leave out, and and in particular also about your relationship with some of the captors, some of the guards, all of the complex situation that you found yourself in. There isn't much that I left out due to concern for whoever it involved. There are a couple of individuals I did not mention in the book because I knew their circumstances were so complex that I didn't understand and I wasn't able to contact them or their families and find out whether or not it would be something they wanted. Uh, it was more, I guess, changing the names of certain people, but a lot of the the political prisoners I mentioned in the book, for instance, they actually told me, even whilst we were still in prison, if and when you get out, use my real name. I want my real name to be in your book. Uh, I don't care if there are, you know, implications for me in Iran afterwards. It's important for me, you know, I can't tell my story myself, but if you tell my story, then I want my real name to be there and I want that to be a record for me. So I, I felt a sense of duty in a way to use their, their real names when, when they had explicitly given me permission. And, you know, whilst at certain times I, you know, did hold back. And obviously there are editorial decisions there too. I mean, I'd written a huge amount. The book was probably <laughs> twice the size and I had to cut it in half. So um, there were things that I would have liked to have kept in that I had to cut out um, just so, you know, for for flow and, and that sort of uh, purpose rather than security concerns. But I, do, I did try to keep the book as faithful to my actual experience as I could, including interactions with the guards and you know, it, I guess it was a bit of revenge for me to include their real names as well. When I, th those of whose real names I was able to find out. Yeah. Um, we will have uh, be able to take some questions from you. Um, so in in a, in a moment. So if you do have something that you want to ask either of our speakers, uh, do hop up. There will be a microphone on either side here and a volunteer on hand to to help. One of the other aspects of of um, the whole thing about about writing about an authoritarian regime is the importance of language and the importance of, of truth. Um, a, a, and the whole thing about being in an environment where lies are all around you. Um, there's one thing, uh, one thing that Louisa has written about this that I just want to read you quickly because uh, this is, you know, about Carrie Lamb. You know, by now most senior officials were regularly telling outlandish, barefaced, verifiable lies in their press conferences, right from the very top down. Um, you know, in December 2019, Carol Lam insisted that Hong Kong's freedoms had not been eroded, even as police brand protest marches. 
you know, and, and you, you talk about what she says. She, she knew that what she was saying was patently untrue. She knew that everyone knew that she was lying. These acts of mass gaslighting served as a raw exercise in power, forcing the population to swallow statements that blatantly contradicted themselves. How do you, you, you know, tell us about what that means for, for people living in Hong Kong and what it meant for you in terms of trying to tell the truth about what you were seeing? I mean, I, you know, I think for people living in Hong Kong, when you're subjected to that kind of falsehood day after day, it, it becomes, you know, quite disorienting. And I mean, I guess that also comes back to your earlier question about journalism and how do you do your duty as a journalist. And that was when I got really tired of this kind of even-handed, this side and on the other hand kind of approach because it made no sense, you know. I mean, and one example is the they've just had uh, um, an appointment of a new leader to replace Carrie Lam. There was uh, a person, he was selected, John Lee. He was the only candidate. He was approved by a very small committee of pro-China people. And yet the media called it election, an election and, you know, the, a lot of the foreign media also called this an election, but there's no way that that follows the criteria of an election in any way. So I just decided, you know, I wasn't going to do that anymore. I didn't think that that's not in the service of journalism to just repeat things, um, whatever the government says, or especially when in some cases it's patently not true. You know, these ideas that the election system has perfected democracy, you know, it's just ludicrous. So I, you know, I thought it was really important to sit down and write what I saw, um, even if that would mean uh, consequences for me, like not being able to return to Hong Kong, um, because I just also feared that um, things were happening so fast and so many things were changing that it was almost hard to keep up with them. And that, you know, just the record, again, it's part of recording for posterity what happened and what the um, authorities were saying and, and just leaving that there. Um, and, you know, sometimes... I don't know if you also found the same, but it was really only when you saw the words on paper that you were like, this is, you know, this is craziness. Why, how do, on earth do people believe this and how do the authorities get away with saying things like this? Um, and so for me, it was just really important to do my best to just reflect truthfully and accurately what was happening. And Kylie, you're in an environment where you have no control over what's happening. You're writing about this. You are being accused in endless interrogation sessions of one day, one thing, the other day, the story's completely changed. How disorienting was that whole process of being an environment where, a propagandised environment, as it were, but also one where, where it's all about um, trying to trip you up um, with, with presenting you with a different version of the truth um, from one day to the next? I mean, I think in my case, it was, obviously it was very disorienting at the beginning, simply mm. because I had no idea what was going on and I didn't speak Farsi. But the extent of the Revolutionary Guard's delusions and conspiracy theory mindset is that extreme that it actually becomes humorous. And, 
you couldn't take any aspect of it seriously. So at the time, even even at the time, the, the stuff they were accusing me of was so outrageous, and the things that they believed were, were so insane about the world, not just about me. You know, they'd come up to me and accuse me of. They say we have photographs of you meeting with a Mossad agent in Dubai in 2013, and I'm like, oh, well, I haven't even visited Dubai in 2013, so how could that even be possible? But also. You guys have been watching too many James Bond films, I'm afraid. Like, it was just so disconnected from reality that, for me, I just laughed. Like, I I didn't really take it at all seriously. And, you know, I was telling someone earlier, at one point I I sat down and asked them to list every conspiracy theory um, that I could think of, from the moon landings to, you know, JFK's assassination to... Um, Al-Qaeda was an inside, uh, September 11 was an inside job to, you know, even COVID and everything. And they signed up whole scale to every single one of them and would look at me and say, you know, what do you mean? Of course Hollywood staged the moon landing or whatever. And so these are people that if that's what they believe, you know, if they believe COVID it doesn't, isn't real and is just biological warfare um, strangely against China by the US, so kind of twisted that in some way, um, if that's what they believe, I just, you can't really give any credence to it. So I think with propaganda, when it is, it takes the truth, twists it, but it is still within the realm of possibility, that is actually more dangerous because then you start to doubt reality and you start to think, okay, maybe there is something in that. But when they've just literally gone off the scale and it is incomprehensible in its extremeness, I think the only real response is just to laugh and, at the end of the day, ignore it. Um, That was largely my reaction. We have a question here. Yes, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your wonderful books. A question to each of you. Um, Louisa was there in 2020 in Hong Kong, and I fucking love Hong Kong too. (laughs) Just adore this jewel in the East. I, residents told me about students being rounded up, pushed off skyscrapers and they're disappearing. If you can comment on that and whether that's true. Um, For Kylie, I was wondering, how do you see uh, the role of women and resistance uh, given the new, well, the political revolutionary aspect of Islam in Iran. Oh, thank you for your question. Um, It's a... At the moment, I mean, there were lots of rumours that were going around about that, and there were a number of reasons why that was. There was one really famous case of a student who was apparently chased by police and fell to his death from a car park, and then there were videos that emerged of bodies... Um, bodies being rolled out of buildings. And then there were unusual statistics about the number of um, bodies being washed up. Um, And, you know, a couple of quite well-known cases where people disappeared. One was a champion swimmer and uh, her body was found drowned. Uh, So there were a lot of rumours, but there's been no possibility of any kind of independent investigation So it's just not clear. Um, You know, I I think, you know, the case, the facts are still that regardless of those, whether that happened or not, there is still, you know, 
hundreds if not thousands of people in prison or on, arrested after the protests for sometimes really tiny acts, you know, you know, was being arrested for having a laser pointer or there's a guy who was arrested for having a, a plastic knife to cut his mooncakes, things like that. Um, and particularly young people, um, the disproportionate um, arrests of young people and this real attempt to kind of atomize civil society and break the organizations that really help, help, held Hong Kong people together that had very strong roots in Hong Kong. So I think um, I can't say whether those rumors were true or not, but I, I do think that it's really tragic that so many people have, you know, had, had their lives, you know, completely changed by the protests and particularly um, political activists, uh, you know, the dozens who were put in prison for having a primary poll to decide which candidates should stand for election. Um, and these were all democratic politicians, former lawmakers, and they're still awaiting trial. So, you know, the situation is really, really bad. Um, that's a fantastic question. I would say that women are actually at the forefront of resisting, yes, <laughs> of resisting the Islamic Republic in Iran. And, you know, some of the most prominent leaders within Iran and in exile are women. Um, people like, you know, Masih Helena Jad in, in the US or Nargis Mohammadi, Nasrin Sutudeh, who are in and out of prison all the time and but within Iran. And they're seen as leaders um, of groups that are actively resisting and speaking out against this regime from within the country by the men and by the women. They have a lot of gravitas. Iranian women are phenomenally strong and courageous. And even though you have a regime which is trying to brainwash the people into some sort of, you know, backward interpretation of Islam, which sees women as subservient to men, a lot of the women, including religious women, by, you know, their own, um, what they say themselves about it or simply through their actions, they stand up against that. Even religious women, and I've even seen Revolutionary Guard women. Um, I, I, I did a kind of a, um, a pop quiz amongst all of the Revolutionary Guard women in the prison and said, do you believe in feminism and are you a feminist at one point? <laughs> and a surprising number of them said they were feminists. And that the reason why they were doing the job of a prison guard was because it was one of the only jobs they could actually do within their very small insular revolutionary guard extreme Islamist circle that was permissible for a woman. And they wanted financial independence and they didn't want to sit at home and have children and fulfill the role of a housewife. So, you know, even within some of these uber um, pro-regime circles, women do stand up. Um, but certainly in, in terms of the political resistance to that regime, women are at the forefront and I'm in awe of Iranian women, you know. The number of them I met in prison that were just extraordinary, um, it blew me away. Thank you. And a final question. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question primarily is to Kylie. But first of all, um, Louisa, I love that slogan. Um, really love to see a T-shirt. It appeals to we sweary Australians. Yeah, <laughs> you'd love to see a T-shirt and I'd happily wear it. Um, but I have no right to say the word here in front of everybody, so I will just say that I am um, so effing happy to be able to see Kylie Moore Gilbert in an auditorium full of people 
knowing what you've gone through and now knowing that you're safe. So, that, thank you. That's really lovely. Thank um, you. I promise I'm not battering you up, but I bought your book the other day, <laughs> hoping there'd be a book signing, and I'm told there's not, but is it possible? There is. There is. There, yes. there is. Oh, okay. After the session, there'll be book signing in Bay 23, so with, with, with both friends? of them. Yep. Oh, okay. That's cool, because then I could get your book. So. <laughs> so then the last question, and just a very quick one. I saw you interviewed on Sky, and you were talking about a time you got on the roof of the jail. Yes. And, and how it liberated you and what you did and the risks you took, and I was just wondering if couple of seconds, you might be able to share that with people who don't know the story. Oh, gosh, it's a long story, but basically I managed <laughs> to escape from the prison um, yard, climb up a big wall and get onto the roof of the interrogation block and cause mayhem up there for a few hours before being brought down. And um, it was the first real taste of freedom I had in more than a year. And um, I, I had this beautiful vista of Tehran, you know, in front of me because I was quite high. And I, my two cellmates, um, to Peter and Nilufar were down in the courtyard below me and I was trying to entertain them with various antics and um, I, I screamed, Salam Tehran, Azadi, you know, freedom and was yelling all sorts of stuff at the skyline of Tehran and just clowning around and it was actually super fun. And, um, uh, and when she the, says it was a big wall, it sounds like it was a really, like it, you're making it sound like it was quite, it's, it was a, quite a big physical challenge. Yeah, it wasn't like Spider-Man climbing one wall. Um, it was sort of going between walls and, and awnings and roofs to sort of scale up in a zigzag fashion. But, yeah, I'd um, been plotting it for some time and worked out the map of my route in advance. And you, these are the things you do when you have a lot of time on your hands. And you <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was an amazing view and uh, it was a beautiful day, beautiful blue sky, and I just felt free. I mean, it was the first time I'd seen the uncaged sky in a way when I was up there, so it was a Big moment for me. Um, we're going to have to leave it there because we've run out of time. But in that answer from Kylie, you have had a, uh, a, a snippet of the qualities in this book. You might think a subtitle, My 804 Days in an Iranian Prison, would indicate something that was perhaps a little repetitive. It is not. It is full of these brilliant stories of um, uh, resistance and spark um, and, uh, you know, somebody enduring an amazing ordeal, but writing about it with the beautiful poetry that you can see in that title, The Uncaged Sky. Louisa has written an amazing book that I would really encourage you to read. Um, if you needed, you know, a truly extraordinary elegy is how, how Ai Weiwei describes it. And it is a book that is a tragedy, the story of a tragedy, but told with the life and gusto that is the hallmark of Hong Kong people um, and something extraordinarily important for us as Australians to read and understand. Please join me in thanking both of our speakers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.